As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Bro History. On today's show, it's my honor and privilege to speak to Virginia State Senator Richard Black. Senator Black represents the 13th District of the Virginia State Senate, and he's also a combat veteran. Uh, Senator Black served with the U.S. Marine Corps in Vietnam from 1963 to 1970, where he was awarded a Purple Heart, and then served as a JAG officer from 1976 to 1994. Uh, Senator, thank you so much for joining me. It's, It's a true honor to speak with you today. Well, it's, it's an honor to be here, and uh, I, I, I'm pleased to join with all your listeners. Great. And I just want to point out to people who are watching and listening right now, um, Tulsi Gabbard, who is obviously in the news or has been in the news for meeting with Bashar al-Assad, she's not the only U.S. politician that made a trip to Syria to, to meet with him. Um, Senator Black traveled to Syria and met with Assad back in 2016. Uh, Senator, what made you interested in the war in Syria? Why, why did you reach out to uh, Bashar al-Assad? Well, I started off following the, the war in Libya. Libya was the, uh, the wealthiest, most advanced, and most secular uh, nation in Africa, uh, and, and certainly in North Africa. Uh, it was, uh, it, it just uh, despised terrorists. And so President Gaddafi kept a very tight lid on, on the terrorist, and he, uh, he ran a very secular government, uh, and uh, it was very generous to its people. It wasn't one of these typical places where the, where the ruler sucks up all the wealth. In fact, all of the wealth was there when he, when he was murdered, uh, and it was used for the benefit of the people. So I thought, I'm curious, you know, I've been around military things all my life. And uh, so I was curious why we were really doing this. And one thing led to another. And one of the things I discovered was that one principal purpose of going in there was to capture the huge weapons arsenal that Libya had and send that into Turkey and across the border into Syria to overthrow Syria. Now, the reason for this, the reason we were doing it is that uh, Syria was the most advanced of all Arab countries. 
Uh, it had the greatest women's freedom. Uh, it had uh, almost complete religious freedom. Um, it had been at peace with Israel for 40 years. It had no troops outside of its own borders. It had a balanced budget. Uh, it had a, a very balanced economy. It wasn't super rich like Saudi Arabia, which you know sucked it all out of oil and, and created nothing else. They actually produced industrial products, pharmaceuticals, uh, machine goods, things like this. They grew agricultural products. They did have some oil and some gas, but it was a very balanced economy. No debt, uh, no debt, which we, we could study their, their uh, uh, way of doing things because we certainly need that in this country. But in any event, because they were so advanced over their neighbors, it made it very difficult for the uh, clandestine services of the Central Intelligence Agency to have people go before Congress and say, hey, look, we've got this country. It has the greatest women's rights. 51% of their college graduates are women. Uh, it has complete religious freedom. It's got a big Christian population that are very supportive of the government. Um, it, it operates under the rule of law and uh, terrific economy. And so we want to destroy it. Please give us appropriations for weapons so that we can wipe these people out, kill them all. And uh, it just would have been awkward. It would have been really awkward to sell the US Congress on appropriating money that way. So we had to do either, either use the black budget, which nobody knows where it comes from and where it goes, or really the more direct way was to invade Libya, capture the weapons and funnel them into Syria and use that to, uh, uh, to overthrow the government. Along with the first shipment of uh, captured and plundered Libyan arms uh, were, I forget whether it was 600 or 900 Tunisian terrorists who had been recruited. And these were just vicious killers. They were murderers who, uh, who would kill anybody that you turned them loose on. And we, we sent those folks uh, into Syria and the United States began the, the Syrian war. Now there were others who helped. Um, there, was, uh, there was a question over oil uh, and gas pipelines. The, uh, the Saudis had long chafed under the fact that Saudi Arabia wouldn't let them run an oil pipeline across the country. And also uh, Qatar, which is a huge oil or huge gas producer, Qatar is essentially sand dunes with gas wells. There's, that's what the country amounts to. And uh, so they demanded to have access for their gas line and uh, President Assad rejected that. And as a consequence, uh, within days, Qatar was funneling billions of dollars worth of weapons and recruiting terrorists to come in and overthrow the government. So there were, there were lots of players in this. The US was not the only one. But if you go back and you look at the timeline, uh, in 2001, 
uh, we, you know, we start off this, this business that we're going to overthrow uh, a major portion of the Middle East. We're going to create war, terror, and uh, chaos there for reasons that are somewhat murky, uh, but uh, we, we know from uh, General Wesley Clark. Wesley Clark um, uh, has done some excellent videos and anyone can Google them if you just put in seven countries in five years. And the gist of what he said was that uh, he had uh, gone to uh, speak with Secretary Rumsfeld and then he went down to the war room, talked with the generals there, and one of his close friends, uh, he, he said, look, he said, uh, you know, we're bombing Afghanistan and we're still planning to go into Iraq. The general said, we definitely are. He said, why? He said, well, there isn't a real good reason, but uh, we seem to have to strike out at somebody. He goes back a month later, and he says, we still going into Iraq. And the guy says, it's worse than that. And he picks up a top secret document. And, and uh, he, says, he says, we've been ordered to overthrow seven countries in the Middle East within the next five years. Now, they didn't meet that schedule, but they, they produced the plans. And uh, it's interesting that the last country on the list is Iran. Uh, Iran is by far the, the biggest lump to swallow. Uh, it's four times the size of Iraq. So if you can imagine, uh, you know, the war in Iraq and you multiply it times four times and probably a lot more, uh, we're talking about potentially a trigger for, for World War III. Um, Anyway, so, so that's, that's some of the background of, uh, of what started it. The, we didn't meet the five-year schedule, but in 2006, the, uh, the Charge d'Affaires, the, the number two guy in the embassy at Damascus, now we didn't have an ambassador, so he was really the number one guy. <coughs> he drafted a rather detailed plan to destabilize and eventually overthrow Syria. Now keep in mind at the time, we were at peace with Syria. Syria had never done a single thing antagonistic towards us or any of our, our allies. Um, they, were, they were doing well, the people were happy, the country was strong. And yet, uh, we, there were two things that stood out when I read the plan. And this came out of, of WikiLeaks. And, and I got to tell you, uh, a medal needs to go to Julian Assange uh, because uh, in a government of the people, the people need to know what the heck is going on. And he allowed us to know by disclosing government documents. And uh, two things that stood out in the uh, plan that was issued by the U.S. Embassy. Number one, they said that because of the popularity of President Assad and his wife, Asma Assad, who's a very charismatic, lovely woman, there was tremendous optimism about what was going to happen in Saudi Arabia, or, or I'm sorry, in Syria. And 
the world began to believe, okay, Syria is really going to see tremendous progress. So there was a lot of foreign direct investment. We said, look, we've got to smear the reputation of Syria so we can cut off the flow of funds going into Syria. Worse than that was that we recognized that like all religions, there's always a little bit of tension you know, there's a little tension between Catholics and evangelicals in this country. But, you know, we get along and we love each other. Um, there was a little bit of tension between Sunnis and Shia in, in uh, Syria. But they loved each other. I mean, they, they worked together, they lived together, and they, they just were respectful of each other. And we said, look, there is an opportunity here to create a belief among the Sunni radicals in Saudi Arabia principally that somehow the Shia are becoming a danger that they're they're going to sweep away Sunni Islam and they're going to become dominant and so uh, to create this hatred between religions. Now you need to understand that one of the things that everyone who knows about Syria will admit is that they had a reputation and they, they had a culture of religious harmony. I'm not talking about religious tolerance. Tolerance is when you put up with something bad because you just have to get along. Religious harmony is when you really respect and you love other people and you accept that they, they may be different, but that's harmony. It's, it's a step way beyond tolerance. And there was harmony in Saudi Arabia, or, or in Syria, excuse me. And uh, so we set out to destroy this harmony and to create bitterness and hatred. And one of the, one of the big scams that we've run throughout the war is the idea of a Shia crescent that was going to surround the Sunni uh, nations and somehow, you know, cause them problems. Syria is 70% Sunni Muslim. It has only 3% Shia. So to say that the 3% Shia are somehow going to convert and take over the 70% Sunnis is sort of like uh, coming to this country and, and warning the, the Catholics and the evangelicals and the Baptists, you better watch out because the Jehovah's Witnesses are taken over everywhere and, and they're going to just destroy you and, and everything that you built. It was so absurd that had we had a legitimate uh, uh, journalistic establishment in this country, we would have uh, we would have said this is so absurd that uh, it it has no foundation and we need to get away from the stupid idea of a Shia crescent. But even to this day, you you see ambassadors and people like that talking about the Shia crescent and the great threat to the world that that poses. So uh, so we we did some some very bad things there to lay the groundwork. Now, there were, 
the Arab Spring, I think it's debatable how that occurred. There was a suicide in Tunisia, and all of a sudden, this so-called Arab Spring swept across the Islamic world. Now, I got to tell you, probably today, within 50 miles of my house, somebody's going to commit suicide, and the world isn't going to change one iota. But if you have that one suicide pushed by every intelligence agency in the, in the entire Western world and the Arab world, all of a sudden you can create something. And I think that's what happened. So there were demonstrations in many countries, including Syria. Um, and we have demonstrations in the United States probably every month. We have the pro-life demonstrations. We have the pro-abortion. We have pro-gun, anti-gun. That these are not people trying to overthrow the government. These are people trying to bring about change. And this is what was happening in Syria. However, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood was a, a terribly sinister organization uh, working together with some of the radical Wahhabists and agents intelligence agents from uh, Turkey, from Saudi Arabia, from the United States, uh, MI6 from, from Great Britain, uh, French intelligence. They began working. And the next thing, uh, I talked with a number of the, the people who were involved in the initial uh, demonstrations, the, the legitimate ones. And I said, I said, well, how long was it before the legitimate demonstrations transformed into uh, violent, revolutionary, uh, Wahhabist uh, movements? And I was really stunned because, and, and these were several independent people, and they said between one and two months. So the demonstrations started, they were calm, they were peaceful, um, very, you know, we'd have been happy to have them come through our capital and hold a demonstration. Um, but uh, within, within weeks, you started to have Al-Qaeda flags. Now always remember, Al-Qaeda brought down the Twin Towers in this country. So you had Al-Qaeda flags. And the leaders would say, get rid of those. This is not what we're about. We just want this change or that. After a couple more weeks, they started showing up with uh, automatic weapons. And I'll tell you that in Syria, you did not go down to your corner drugstore and buy a Kalashnikov and uh, walk out the door with it. So these were funneled in from outside by the intelligence agencies. And so at a certain point, particularly down in southern uh, uh, Syria, you had demonstrations and then the Muslim Brotherhood and some of these intelligence agencies would post people, snipers, who would overlook the demonstration sites. And uh, President Assad ordered that the troops be unarmed, that they only carry batons and shields to control the crowds, because he didn't want an excuse for the West to trigger some sort of a violent confrontation. And so you had these unarmed troops out there, and the next thing, uh, gunfire starts going off, and the 
and the snipers would would kill a soldier and then they would kill a demonstrator, kill a soldier demonstrator, soldier demonstrator. Before long, the soldiers thought that the demonstrators were killing them. The demonstrators thought the soldiers were killing them. But in fact, it was uh, these covert intelligence agents uh, aided by the Muslim Brotherhood and some of the radical uh, Sunni Wahhabists uh, that they worked with. And one thing and another, at a certain point, uh, Ambassador Ford, we had actually put an ambassador in, and Ambassador Ford was one of the most sinister figures of this war. Uh, he was only there for a short time, but when they had a big outburst of, uh, of uh, you know, sort of, you know, really, really wild demonstrations, he and the French ambassador evaded uh, Syrian government officials, slipped in to where the demonstration was taking place, and pledged total support, total U.S. support for the uprising against the government. And of course, you can imagine the impact that had. Imagine back when we had the LA riots, which were very serious riots. Uh, if the Russian and Chinese ambassadors had said, hey, look, anything you guys are doing, we're behind you 100%. We're gonna back you diplomatically. We'll make sure that uh, weapons make their way uh, into you, so we want you to continue. Uh, who knows where where that would have gone? But uh, in any event, uh, we played a very very sinister role in this. I think we played a central role in the war. And frankly, if uh, if if President uh, Trump had been able to carry out his order to immediately withdraw American troops, all American troops from Syria, the war would come to an end. The only thing that, that keeps it going is this central direction from the United States that gives strategy, strategic direction to the war. Uh, and the war never would have uh, blown up into something that would kill half a million people had the United States not been very deeply involved and been funneling weapons constantly and, and Blackwater-style mercenaries into the country and CIA people and that sort of thing. Uh, we really have been at the heart of the war and ironically, keeping in mind, going back to the, the fact that the war on terror is a war against an idea. And the idea is Wahhabism. The United States is fighting on the side of Wahhabism. In other words, the, the deep state, if you will, the military industrial complex, the foreign policy establishment has taken the side of the enemy in the war on terror. And we are perpetuating and enlarging uh, the war on terror and, and enlarging terrorism across, across the globe. Senator, can you uh, speak more to some of the moderate rebels that we were supporting? Yes. Um, one, one, of the, one of the propaganda ploys that we used was to promote the no, uh, 
the notion of moderate rebels, that somehow there were these good people who just wanted to change the government and make it better. Now, they never did bother to explain in what fashion they intended to improve it, uh, but they wanted to make it better. And one of our favorites was the Free Syrian Army. It has such a, such a sweet sound to it. Uh, but I will tell you that I have, uh, I have seen the videos of the Free Syrian Army uh, when they took over in, in southern uh, Syria, and uh, they took over a post office. Now, you, you know, postal employees, they're not very political people. They're just, you know, they want to earn a living for their family, you know, do their jobs. Well, they took the entire staff from the post office, marched them up onto about the fourth story of the, uh, on the roof of the building. And then they gathered a great big crowd and just one by one, they took them and they shoved them off the roof and you could watch them falling. And then they would hit the, they'd hit the uh, concrete steps and you could just hear them crushing as they'd fall and then another one would be falling and just one by one. You can imagine these people, they're standing in a line and they're watching their friends one by one go off the top. That's one incident. Uh, there was a famous incident that proved an embarrassment to the United States when one of the brigade commanders of the Free Syrian Army um, uh, on the battlefield, they had just killed a young Syrian soldier, young boy, and this fellow took his knife and ripped open uh, his chest and pulled out a piece of his liver, chopped it off, and then ate it with blood all over his face. And uh, this was the Free Syrian Army that we were touting as being the, the future uh, of the country. Now, I want to tell you something. I, a very dear friend, uh, she, she doesn't disclose her identity because of her family. She's a Christian. Her family are Christians still in Syria. But uh, she told me about an incident where, you know, the Turks have traditionally been the killers of Christians. They have a long history of murdering Christians from the time that they took Constantinople and they... Uh, committed the great rape of Constantinople and uh, turned it into Istanbul eventually. But anyway, at a point in the war where we thought that terror was going to win the day for us, um, there was a plan to attack across the, the Turkish border uh, into what's called the Valley of the Christians. And there is a lovely, well, it was a lovely little uh, Christian village. It actually looked more like something you'd find in, in, in Germany and up in the mountains or, or Switzerland. A beautiful little town, uh, several beautiful churches. And uh, the, uh, the Turkish allies, including led by the Free Syrian Army, by Al-Qaeda, and uh, various terrorist organizations. They let the United States know they were going to attack across the border. We rushed a shipment of 600 
first line anti-tank missiles uh, into Turkey to supply this group. I think this was perhaps, perhaps it may have been the first major supply. This was in, I think, 2013. And we, uh, we rushed them there, we rushed trainers, and we trained people so that they could use these. The, the terrorist attacked in, in four columns across the border, and uh, they invaded the Valley of the Christians, and they, they raped, they murdered. Uh, the Syrian army desperately tried to evacuate the Christians, because the Syrian army is very pro-Christian, the, the Syrian government is. And uh, they got most of them out, but there were old people, disabled people, people who maybe hadn't gotten the word. And uh, uh, when, the, uh, when the Free Syrian Army and the terrorist allies took over, uh, they murdered, they raped, murdered uh, all of the remaining Christians, uh, and then they beheaded 13 of the Christians. Uh, afterwards, they went through, they defiled the churches, destroyed things that had been there for 10 or 500,000 years. And then they went into the, the cemeteries where there were ancient uh, tombstones that had been there for many hundreds of years. And they took sledgehammers and they smashed. So they destroy all of the history of Christianity there. Uh, even to this day, even though the Syrian government has, uh, has recaptured all of that area. Uh, we, I'm not sure that we directly order it, maybe the Turkish government orders it, but uh, there is a sniper whose job is to kill any Christians who return to Kassab to rebuild. And uh, so the Christians have tried to move back in but every time they do, a sniper puts crosshairs on him, blows his brains out. Uh, and that's coming right across the Turkish border. So these are just a few of the things. I, I'll tell you one other thing. Here's um, early in the war, there was this, another Christian town and, uh, and a couple of trucks of terrorists drove into the town. They went through. And the Christians being very giving people, they allowed some of the Sunnis to live among them. The terrorists went in, they, they murdered every Christian they could find. They allowed the, the Muslims to live, they killed the Christians. That afternoon, the Christian children were supposed to have an examination. And so a bus came carrying uh, proctors who were supposed to proctor the examination for the children. And so these, these young women teachers were on the bus. They didn't realize what had happened in the, in the town. And uh, as soon as the bus stopped, the jihadists stormed on the bus, pulled the young women off the bus, stripped them naked, marched them through the town to the to the central square tied them to stakes and then gang raped them they allowed any muslim in the city to rape them and they raped them continuously throughout the day 
And at the end of the day, they took sabers and they chopped them into pieces and threw the pieces into the river in the belief that Jesus Christ could never find them to, to resurrect their souls if, uh, if they were in pieces. This is the character of the type of people the United States has supported, armed, trained, paid from the very beginning of the war. Another another case, and it's horrifying. Another case that really that really hit me is when I where I really started following the Syrian war was when one of our backed coalitions pulled out a young Palestinian boy from a hospital and chopped his head off. Um, it was one of the most horrifying. I didn't watch the video because I don't really have the stomach for that, but it was one of the most horrifying displays of violence I've ever heard about well that was interesting and i did watch the video i'm, I'm not I, I i don't watch horror movies because i'm not into that kind of thing but i like to see the original source as as close as i can get to the original source and uh, they had very proudly uh, videoed the whole thing and published it but what they did this is during the battle of aleppo uh, probably the greatest battle of the entire Syrian war. Uh, the Syrians finally managed to, uh, to uh, cut off the terrorists in the Aleppo pocket. And uh, during that time, the terrorists were trying to stage a breakout and they were very afraid that the civilians who despised them would turn on them and perhaps start killing their soldiers. Um, or on the other hand, they didn't want them to escape because they wanted to use them as propaganda where they would say, oh, look, the, the Syrian government is killing civilians. So they wanted the civilians to remain there and not, not to use one of the channels that the government has established for them to escape. So these five people from a group called Nur al-Zinki which was entirely funded and established by the United States. We literally sent them their pay every month and the pay came entirely from the, from the US Treasury. Uh, we, their arms, everything, their instruction on what they were to do, everything came from, uh, from CIA uh, clandestine services. And uh, uh, so what happened is they decided they had to keep people in order. And so they slipped through, they, they infiltrated the government lines. They went to a hospital. They found a, a little Palestinian boy who was suffering from uh, a uh, blood disease. Uh, they kidnapped him. He still had the... Uh, he had the IV hanging from his arm. And you can see that if you look carefully at the photos. Um, he was terrified. He's got these five big hairy men who are roughing him up and throwing him into a truck. They drove the truck to the center of, uh, of the Aleppo pocket. And in front of everybody, in front of all the public, they sliced his head off with a knife uh, this terrified little boy, they took his head off and then 
they wave the head in front of all of the public so that everyone understood if you cross us this is your fate and afterwards the united states was a little bit embarrassed and so we temporarily uh, cut off their their paychecks and made sure that their paychecks were routed through the saudi arabians or the the qataris the money when we when we cut something off we always are able to make sure that it it reaches the people we want uh, but we we cover up so that it doesn't embarrass us before the public yes you can't moderately chop somebody's head off unfortunately no you can't <laughs> senator can you tell us more about your meeting with Assad? Yeah, I, I have had two meetings with him. Um, I met with him in 2016 at a time when the war was, uh, the war was really kind of dicey. It was not entirely clear who was going to win, who was going to lose. And I decided to go there and show my support for the moderate secular government against the Wahhabist terrorist. And, uh, uh, so I had a tremendous visit with him. Uh, he really gave me complete access to everything. I had tremendous security with me, but I was in charge. And when I said, we go there, we went there. Um, and uh, uh, so he and I spent a lot of time discussing the war, discussing the background. and. I understood the background very well myself, so I didn't, I didn't need to, to understand basics from him, but I always told people, they'd say, well, did, did he teach you something? I'd say, no. I said, really, my discussions changed black and white to technicolor, because he filled in details that, that perhaps I had not known. and. Uh, and I, I was fortunate, I met his, his very lovely wife, uh, Asma Assad. Um, yeah, it's interesting, neither one of them ever intended to be in the world of politics. Um, uh, Bashar al-Assad, he, he was not cut out to be a military ruler. Uh, he was very Western educated. He, he, um, my guess is he, he probably leans a little bit on the liberal side in his beliefs. Um, uh, Asma Assad was, was completely raised uh, in London. And, uh, but the two of them, they're, they're very interesting because uh, they do not have an imperial presidency. Unlike us, unlike Britain, France, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, uh their their presidency is very egalitarian um president assad as a personality you can see many many uh many videos he's done and he is the same person in every one and he's the same person in person he he and his wife have iqs that are just off the richter scale very very bright um he is a very modest man. He doesn't like particularly to, to dress in military garb. You typically will see him in an ordinary off-the-shelf suit. Um, 
there's almost a touch of shyness about him. He's a very good listener. Um, he is a very gentle person. I know people will hate it when I say that, but it, it is in his nature. His wife is, um, she is a very self-sacrificing, patriotic woman. Not, neither of them is very warlike, um, but she's lovely. She, she's very self-sacrificing. I'll give you an example. Um, there was a terrible terrorist group called Jaysh al-Islam. And Jaysh al-Islam was famous for capturing uh, Alawite uh, women. And uh, the Alawites are known as the friends of the Christians over there. Uh, Christians make up about 10%. Alawites make up about 10%. And so Jaysh al-Islam would capture these women and put them in mobile steel cages that they could, they could hitch up like a trailer and drag them from place to place. They had no sanitary facilities, they had no privacy, and, but they would take them around. And what they would do is Jaysh al-Islam, in, you know, Damascus is a big sprawling city. It's a very large city. And they controlled a good portion of the city. And what they would do is they would identify government-held areas that had public schools. And they would figure out when the parents would take their children to school. And they would train their mortars on them. So in one case, they found the school where uh, where the Assad children were attending, just like all other Syrian children. And they fired mortars and they killed a lot of the parents who were bringing their children to school and a lot of the children who were just arriving at school. They did this all the time, but this was the time that they happened to hit the Assad's school. And uh, so of course there was this tremendous horror and, and, uh, and outrage of the people at what was being done. The following day, Asma Assad walked her children to that same school and her friends were, they were, they were just so distraught. They said, you can't do this. He said, you're the first lady of Syria and the danger here is enormous. Don't you know that they just killed all these people? She said, she said, President Assad and I are Syrians. We share the same dangers, the same risks as every Syrian, and we have no right to anything better. Now, can you imagine if that happened here in the United States? or if that happened in France, in Britain, in Saudi Arabia, can you actually imagine the first family saying, we're gonna continue as usual because we want to show everybody in the country we're no better than they are. You would not find, I, I can't think of a country in the world where you would see that, but it's the nature of the leaders of this country that they are very egalitarian 
and they don't believe that they deserve better than anybody else. When I, I, I have a friend, uh, he's Syrian American, and he said, he said, when President Assad first returned to Syria from London, he came home and he was going to his apartment building and his, his neighbor said, do you know who's just moved in to the, to the apartment complex? He said, who? the president and his wife and his children really they moved in they didn't move into some palace they just they rented an apartment just like everybody else would do and to this very day president assad is known for driving his own suv when he has uh, distinguished visitors he takes them out in his own suv now he's got to be very careful that that uh, Western intelligence or the Brotherhood or those people don't know when he's when he's traveling around, but he's done it a number of times. He he's gone to uh, to uh, uh, Christian mass at uh, at Christian churches. He's gone to uh, to the cel celebration of Ramadan and and uh, various uh, Muslim celebration and he just goes without a tremendous amount of security he the, the president of the united states and, I, and i'm no critic of him but he would not think of showing up with the the type of light security that president assad has now why is this? it's because president assad has such enormous support among the syrian people that he really feels uh, a, a tremendous amount of, uh, of support and safety uh, among them. As long as, as long as the spy versus spy guys are not there to, uh, to intervene. So uh, I, I was very impressed uh, when I went in 2016, they, they allowed me to go wherever I wanted. And then I went back in 2018 and this time they supplied me far less security because the country has become relatively secure. Uh, I drove five hours across the desert from, uh, from uh, Damascus to Aleppo. And uh, we didn't have a single soldier with a long gun. We had, we had some National Guard types with pistols, but that was it. The time before I had had a a 12 vehicle convoy with with three uh, automatic cannon we had air support and all of this and i was traveling in a bulletproof vehicle and we were we were rushing as quickly as we could go through air areas controlled by isis so the change has been just enormous in syria since the syrian armed forces have recaptured the country I don't I don't think people understand that they could have left the country. That would have been the easy thing to do. It, it would have been so easy. And I'm sure there must have been at least some little discussion because their children were at risk. They were at risk. And I have no doubt if they had talked to the CIA and said, look, we want $100 million in a Swiss bank account they'd have had it in, in a second. Um, but 
they truly believe that their fate is the fate of the Syrian people. They're, they are not after wealth. They are not after, they're not after power. Uh, President Assad, honestly, I think if, if, if the war ended and things got back to normal and there were some, you know, some good patriotic uh, Syrian who, who ran for office, uh, he might just step down. Uh, because I think he would, he would be delighted to have this whole thing over with if he could. He's not a warlike person. He's, you know, I've, I've just noticed he's not completely at ease wearing, wearing a uniform. And the one I, I have, I happen to have a, uh, an informal intelligence network among the people, not the, not the government uh, rulers, but the people. And the only criticism that is commonly heard among them about President Assad is that they don't think he is tough enough. They think that he should be more, a little bit more like his opponents, a little bit more willing to kill and a little bit uh, less concerned about the injury to civilians and things like that. Uh, you can argue either way. Uh, his brother, who was killed in a in an auto accident, was was definitely more of that type. Um, had he not been killed, he would have been the president. Maybe he would have ended the war earlier, but we don't know. Maybe he would have lost the war. Uh, Assad has shown extraordinary brilliance in the way that he has fought the war. He's certainly outfoxed the, the West. He's outfoxed the Pentagon, the CIA, and all of these other people. And that's exactly why I, I, I question the mainstream narrative that he used chemical weapons, specifically the time the, the Gouda gas attack. And the reason why is because at that time, he was fighting multiple fronts of that war. Why would he use chemical weapons on his own people to spark the West to joining the war front. Um, I, I know that you, you've investigated that. Uh, would you mind speaking more to that? Yes. Um, now, the Gouda gas attack was in 2013. So I want, I want everybody to listen to this very carefully. This is simple, and it's short, and it's extremely important. The Gouda gas attack is in 2013. Five years later, in 2018, Secretary Mattis is the Secretary of Defense, and he makes this statement, we have no evidence that President Assad has ever used sarin gas against his people. Think about that. We have been told, I'm sure in 10,000 articles, there may be 50,000 articles, we have been told that President Assad uh, crossed the red line and gassed his own people in Gouda in 2013. Five years later, our Secretary of Defense says there is no evidence that President 
Assad ever used sarin gas against his people. Astounding. Now this should have been 48 point type on the front page of every newspaper. It should have been the discussion of every broadcast uh, network on television. You can find it in Newsweek. Uh, it, the quote is in Newsweek, but it's buried. There is such total dominance and, and unity and censorship in the American media in foreign affairs that when there is this admission from the Secretary of Defense that Assad did not use poison gas on his people, that is stunning. It really is. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh, it, it really is. I always thought that the gas was smuggled in for, through Turkey. Yes, and and uh, there there was uh, tremendous uh, evidence of this. Uh, probably the best military foreign policy journalist. Uh, alive is Seymour Hirsch. Uh, I don't know where he gets all his contact. He knows everybody in the CIA, the Pentagon, uh, all of these agencies, and they slip him information. Uh, he, he won the Pulitzer Prize for breaking the story on the My Lai massacre. He broke the story on the Abu Ghraib sexual misconduct. He was published everywhere. Everybody loved to, to get his stuff until he began reporting on Syria and then he was censored. But he issued uh, an excellent article called The Red Line and the Rat Line in which he, he discussed the movement of weapons from Libya to Turkey and into Syria. Uh, and uh, he, he discussed the, uh, the Gouda gas attacks. And he goes into great depth and he explains how the gas came across the border from Turkey, uh, went to Damascus and was used by the rebels uh, with, with homemade uh, technology, but with, with high-grade high uh, sarin gas that was brought from Turkey. And they actually had an accident, and it was almost, almost zeroed out of the press. But some of the some of the terrorists, they're in a room with all kinds of weapons, and they said, "What is this? What is this stuff?" And they uh, they started toying around with it. And the next thing, a bunch of them were dead on the floor. Um, but in any event, uh, they staged this a false flag gas attack as a pretext to get the United States into the war. Now, there was a meeting held by the terrorists, the CIA, MI6, the British MI6, uh, the, the Turks, the Saudis, and uh, the terrorists said, they said that, uh, in the very near future, there is going to be an event which will cause the United States to attack Damascus. Now, how did they know that? 
what if you what if you said in 10 days there's going to be an attack on new york city who would believe it well only somebody who knew that it was actually going to happen would believe it and yet the central intelligence agency after that meeting immediately opened up their warehouses and began shipping the the most modern weapons a huge quantity of them across the syrian border for the final drive on damascus now at that time there was a stalemate there wasn't a final drive being done anywhere but the feeling was okay they knew the americans were going to bomb after this fake gas attack was staged and then with these weapons they would attack and the west would be bombing and and slaughtering everybody and they would take over just like syria so that was very very well documented and one other thing and everybody needs to think about this this is very simple but think about this each of the three big gas attacks that's been reported the biggest one being the Gouda gas attack you did not see any terrorist soldiers writhing on the ground dying from gas all you saw were civilian men women especially children always children now if syria was so desperate that they were willing to risk the united states landing troops on their shore and for certain destroying the country wouldn't they at least have gone after the terrorists who were threatening to conquer the country why would they go after women pushing baby strollers instead of going after jihadist troops it's irrational and yet there has not been one journalist in the mainstream media has who has ever said um press spokesman could you answer for us this all of the victims were civilians why didn't the syrians go after the terrorists after the the terrorists who are trying to conquer the country why did they just go after a random bunch of civilians now the reason that not one journalist has asked it is there is no answer to the question and if you want to have a job as a journalist in the future you understand there are some questions you do not ask or you are finished you are blacklisted for the rest of your life so no one has ever yet asked why are all of the gas attacks against mere civilians when syria is threatened by many mechanized divisions of enemy troops well armed with with guided missiles with uh, with heavy anti-tank with with tanks with uh, armored personnel carry why don't they use it against them
why do they choose housewives as their target? It's irrational. And I'm going to tell you the Syrian people are as rational as any group of people you'll ever meet. So the whole thing is a concocted lie. The Central Intelligence Agency, their clandestine services, they know it's a lie. They used the same lie to get us into Iraq, where you had Colin Powell, and he's there in the, in the United Nations, and he's waving around a vial that is supposed to simulate sarin gas. And he can say, they've got sarin gas. We've got to go after Iraq. Why? Because Iraq um, had never done a single thing to the United States. And they had been uh, one of the greatest enemies of the terrorist. But sarin gas always sounds good. It's like, ooh, spooky. Ooh, spooky. Sarin gas. Yeah, that that's bad. And they get people riled up. But people will never ask the question, why didn't they use it against military people if they felt that they had to use it? And why did the Secretary of Defense, just one year ago today, why did he say that we have no evidence whatsoever that President Assad has ever used sarin gas against his people? Unfortunately, that's one of the big smears when someone ever, when someone ever questions that narrative, someone shoots straight back, well, Assad used chemical weapons. Um, you see that a lot with Tulsi Gabbard, and I'm not entirely sure if she, I think she's questioned the narrative, but she's met with Assad. Um, I was wondering what you thought about that. Well, I'm glad that she did. Um, I think if, uh, if she were in a position to be more honest and forthright, uh, she would be saying exactly the same things that I'm saying. She does not believe that he did the, the gas attacks. She does not believe that he has slaughtered his people. We slaughtered his people. Um, now, not just us. I mean, the Saudis, the Turks. I mean, there are a whole array of, of people who have slaughtered the, the innocent Turkish people. Um, but, uh, but Tulsi Gabbard does not believe in creating a, a neo-colonial empire in the Middle East. Uh, she believes that people should be left uh, to live lives of peace. Uh, and she is against the sanctions. You know, we impose sanctions. And I, when I was over there, I went to a, a hospital in Damascus uh, where they treated uh, the, the war victims. And a lot of these guys, because of our missiles and the weapons that we have sent, they're missing arms, they're missing legs, they're blind and so forth. And we've been very cunning. The, the law of war says that you can't, you can't blockade food and medicine. And so what we have done to get around that is we have made it impossible to exchange currency. So uh, these, these men would wait years before they could get a prosthetic device. And they told me that uh, uh, 
that the United States had blocked uh, the importation of uh, anti-cancer drugs for elderly people who were, who were dying of cancer. And we just want to create the most misery and sorrow and, and uh, suffering among people. Uh, it never seems to work. All that it does is it, it hardens the people, makes them much, much more resistant to American ideas, and it teaches them that this is a cruel country. Uh, we, we cut off everything. The, the Syrian government has now brought 90% of the people under its control, and the people are, they're, they're very, these are very energetic and very dynamic people. They're not at all like the Saudi Arabians who are lazy, who live off oil wealth, and who spend their time on orgies and buying slaves and selling slaves, watching uh, camels race and stuff like that. The Syrians are very, very dedicated people. And they, uh, with what they have, you see them all over the place. And they're cleaning things up and they're ripping down destroyed buildings and they're doing their best to rebuild. But the US has a blockade. Uh, we don't call it a blockade, but that's what it is. It's essentially a blockade. We, they don't have internet service because we blocked them from internet service. Uh, they don't have telephone service outside the country because we blockade that. Um, we blockade everything that we can and uh, we don't allow them to get cement, reinforcing bar to rebuild buildings, to provide housing for people. And then we've gone up into northern Syria. We've created this puppet army with the, uh, with the Kurds. The Kurds only make up uh, perhaps 10% of that population up there. But we've said, okay, we're going to give it to the Kurds. And they will rule over the Christians and the Arabs there. And, uh, and they will impose their version of... Uh, you know, they have this very, very odd sort of a mix of communism and mysticism and different things. And I don't, you know, I like the Kurds. They're, not, they're very nice people. We've convinced them that somehow we can create this little landlocked country um, surrounded on all three sides by, by hostile neighbors and that somehow that's going to survive. But Part of it is the biggest, the biggest uh, amount of oil produced by Syria comes from that area and some of the greatest agricultural production. So what we want to do is we want to suck the wealth of the, of the Syrian people and give it to a minority up in this northern Syria area and Part of the reason we want to hold that is we don't want Iran to be able to trade with Syria, and there is a major trade route that, that runs through there. Um, so we're, we're creating suffering, and we just won't end it. If we, if we were genuine about wanting peace in Syria, we would do what Donald Trump said. We would get everybody out. And I wish he had somebody who wasn't a neocon working on his foreign policy staff, because I would have drafted up specific orders that would 
start with southern Syria, where we, we hold a base called Al-Tant, which provides shelter for ISIS and for all kinds of terrorist groups. And I would have said, okay, you have 48 hours, you will clear out every single man, you will take every vehicle that you can, and you will drive across the Jordanian border, which is not very far, the Jordanians are our allies, and you will be gone. And you will torch everything that remains, whether it's vehicles, what it is, but you will get out in 24 hours. And if you do not, you will be relieved for cause and you will be processed for elimination from the service. And that would have been the order to the commander there. And, uh, and then I would, I would watch, I would send somebody there to physically watch it take place. And if it wasn't taking place, then I would have the President of the United States order the relief for cause of that commander and replace him with somebody that he could trust who would say, okay, we're getting out of here. You guys load up and burn everything that you don't want to take. We're getting on a convoy. Get the Jordanians to cooperate. And uh, even if they had to come across the border a little bit to help with security, and just race them across the border and send them back to the United States. We could do that, but the Department of Defense is determined. They have this long range strategy that they play out over decades and decades, and they're determined to try to bring down Syria. So it's a, it's a shame. And I, uh, you know, personnel, or personnel are policy. So, when the president puts in place in the White House a group of people who are neocon war hawks, he is going to have a hawkish foreign policy. He's ordered twice the evacuation of, of Syria. And the last time he was very explicit. He said, I want an immediate withdrawal of every single troop out of, uh, out of Syria. And John Bolton jumped on a plane, he ran to Tel Aviv, and he announced that we were not getting out of Syria. He just directly countermanded the president's order. Now, had I been the president, I would have fired John Bolton. I would have had all of his things removed from the White House and set out on the lawn so that when he got back, he could, he could pick them all up and get him out of there, but there, there would not be one thing of his left in the White House by the time he got back from overseas. I think anyone would. And it's kind of funny that the Pentagon, they came out and said that we don't take orders from John Bolton. Yeah, and you know, there, what's going on, and it's always important to remember, there are divisions within the foreign policy establishment. And particularly within the Pentagon. And you're right, uh, the Pentagon was highly irritated by John Bolton going out and countermanding the president's order. It wasn't necessarily that all the generals in the Pentagon felt that way, but there were enough of them to make their voices heard. Um, we are fighting, again, going back to the original idea, the war on terror is a war against an idea. The idea is Wahhabism. 
and Wahhabism stems from Saudi Arabia. Uh, if we were serious after 9-11, we would have immediately attacked Saudi Arabia. We wouldn't have gone after Iraq. Questionable, we might have done something with Iran, but it would not have been this gigantic war that we're fighting there. But we'd have gone after the source of the problem with which Saudi Arabia. And yet we've allied ourselves with them and we've allowed them to, to drag us along by the nose as long as they buy plenty of weapons from us. Yeah, it's a tragedy that people, Saudi Arabia doesn't really get on the public eye until they do something like murder a Washington Post journalist. That's the only way they get media attention. Yeah, and they've been, I mean, they've been doing much worse than that. Um, they say that this uh, quick action uh, group that was formed by the Crown Prince uh, was designed to uh, go and, and get after his opposition. And they've, they've imprisoned 2,600 people, tortured them. Some of them have died. And, you know, meanwhile, of course, the Western press is just, fawning over themselves to show how liberal uh, Saudi Arabia has become, how modernized they've become. And they say, well, look at this. They're going to allow women to drive. And uh, there was a group of women activists who had been, you know, calling for this on social media. And immediately after they announced that they were going to allow women to drive, they arrested all of those women and tortured some of them. Um, as far as I know, they're, they're, they're still all in, in confinement just because they said, oh, we really like this. This is going to be our chance to drive. <clears throat> you need to understand that one of the rules of Wahhabism is that a woman can never leave her home without the permission of a male guardian, usually her husband. Sometimes it's, it's her brother if he's passed on. Uh, but she is basically a possession. She is a slave in every sense of the word. I mean, we, we talk about slavery, uh, you know, and in this country, and of course we ended in 150 years ago, but it, uh, it didn't end. It was officially on the books in Saudi Arabia until 62. But then as it applies to women, a man is free to beat a woman. He can lash her, he can beat the tar out of her. Uh, she cannot leave the house, she cannot communicate. She is totally uh, at his whim. I, I'm not sure how you can distinguish that from the slavery, the plantation slavery that went on in the early days of, uh, of the colonies here in the United States except that it's, it is limited to women. Uh, so uh, these are the, if you look at the allies we've chosen, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Turkey, all of them are absolute dictatorships. And one of the things that just, just irked me to no end, I have read the, uh, the constitution of Syria, of, of Syria. It is admirable. I've got to say, if you read it, you'll find it guarantees women equal rights. 
It guarantees freedom of religion in three different places, three different fashions. It guarantees the rule of law. It goes on and on. And uh, it's really an admirable uh, uh, document. And yet the Saudi Arabians have said, they've got to change their constitution. We must have it. Well, that, the reason is that people don't, people have never read it. Now, how are they gonna change it? Nobody ever asked. Well, they wanna change it and they want it to be Wahhabi, which is Sharia law. Sharia law is what they function under in Saudi Arabia, which says a woman cannot leave the house without her husband's permission. If, if, you, uh, if you find a, uh, a Christian, you can behead him. Um, uh, and had, had this plan all worked, had the CIA's plan worked, Al-Qaeda, Syria, or uh, Al-Qaeda or Al- um, Al-Qaeda or ISIS would have been in charge of Damascus. The caliphate would have been enormous. It would have been one of the heavily, most heavily armed uh, militaries on the face of the earth. And they would have imposed radical Sharia law. They would have conducted one of the greatest Holocaust in human history, which would have been the slaughter of all of the Christians and all of the Alawites there, perhaps 4,000 people. They would have murdered the men and then they take the women and they sell them as slaves. They would have created slave markets. And this would have been our, our legacy in the Middle East. Yeah, it's just, it's a very it's it's a horrifying thing to think about. And you know, if you think the migrant crisis right now is bad to Europe, I mean, what would have happened if if Syria fell? It would. And I you know, uh at the height of of ISIS power, uh they had a, a very slick magazine that they used to recruit around the world. And uh, during ISIS time as a, as a world power, they only identified three people as enemies of ISIS. And uh, they devoted a half a page each to the other two and a full page to me. And they, they labeled me the, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the American crusader. And, uh, and I accept that. Uh, and, uh, but they quoted me, interestingly, they quoted me verbatim. And I had said that, uh, that Syria is the center of gravity on the war on terror. Uh, and the center of gravity in military terms is that thing which determines whether you win or lose. And um, I said, if Syria falls, then Lebanon will fall and Jordan will fall within a period of a couple of months. I said, at that point, you will have this great, powerful caliphate guarding the flank of Turkey. And we know that President Erdogan has now become an absolute dictator and he envisions himself as being uh, the head of the new Ottoman Empire. 
which has fought with, uh, with Europe over the centuries. And I think with that backing behind him, I think we would begin to see a drive uh, of Turkey uh, on Europe. And at this point, I think Europe has lost its, its moral fabric. And I think, uh, I think Ottoman Turkey would, would conquer Europe this time. They just don't have the strength. They might not conquer Russia or some of the East, but I think Western, Western Europe would fall. Yeah, it's really it's really something to to consider with these Middle Eastern wars, like what what the actual cost is in the long run, because, you know, sometimes you're not going to see it years ahead of time. But uh, I mean, Senator Black, is there any is there anything else that we should know about your experience in Syria, meeting with Assad, um, the opposition groups, like anything else that we should all know? Let me just tell you that uh, uh, at this point, uh, you know, having having driven across Syria and stopping at lots of places that, uh, uh, you know, we didn't expect to stop, but somebody had to use the restroom or something, and we would stop at at shepherds' shacks out in the desert, where some shepherd would have a flock of 50, 50 sheep, just like back in the time of Jesus, and. Uh, the people there, we weren't there to question them. We were there to use whatever facilities they, they had, uh, the hole in the ground or whatever. And, uh, but they all volunteered. They were so joyous that the terrorists were, were run out. And, and they were so joyous about their president and so proud of what he had accomplished. Uh, there is this enormous upwelling. I tell you, there's not a politician in the world who wouldn't be jealous if they could get on the ground and see the support, the depth of support that uh, President Assad and the First Lady have among the people. Uh, so I think that's the thing. Um, it's important to know the way that we can end this war. We need to withdraw immediately every American every bit of, of military support, including the things we call non-combatant non support, get them all out, get out all of the, the black water types, get the technicians out, get the CIA agents out, and don't replace them, don't arrange to have NATO countries come in and do the same thing that we were doing. Get out of there, which will, immediately cause the, the Kurds up in the north to reconcile with the, with the main government. Right now, we're giving them encouragement to stay apart from the government. But once we're gone, there's only one solution. They're going to reconcile. And, uh, and then we need to end these stupid sanctions that we're applying on every country in the world. Uh, it's so easy to do. And yet, uh, uh, if, if the American people realize the poverty and the disease and suffering that we cause by those things, we need, to, we need to get out of the sanctions business completely. But anyway, I think the good news for America is that uh, President Assad and the Syrian army have 
pulled our chestnuts out of the fire. Uh, even though you never hear it even mentioned in the media, it is the Syrian army that has won this war. They have fought the hardest battles in the toughest places, and it was just not reported on. And, uh, and they, have, they have won the war. I'll, I'll also add that, uh, that uh, President Assad has made it a point to rebuild the Christian churches. Hundreds and hundreds have been damaged and destroyed and he is rebuilding them at a rapid pace. He's also rebuilding mosques that were destroyed. But he told me, he said that he, he sees the Christians as a leavening influence on the culture. Uh, and he wants to see moderation uh, in the country. So uh, he, has, he has been consistently the protector of the Christians in the Middle East. And the United States, unfortunately, in Syria, in Iraq, everywhere that we have attacked, we have been the enemy of the Christians. We have destroyed ancient Christian civilizations everywhere that we could. And uh, uh, I, I, wish that, I wish that people understood it, but it's not reported because the mainstream media simply censors everything. Yeah, it, it's it's a real tragedy how the mainstream media reports this like this. They they leave out so many key details and facts about what's actually going on there. Um, that's why what you've been doing is so brave, and 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 I'm I'm really honored to speak with you. Well, I'm I'm pleased to be with you today, and we just we just have to keep up the fight. People ask me, they said, well, how do we how do we how do we win? How do we end all of this suffering and slaughtering around the world? And I tell them. I, I think what we're doing um, through shows like yours, uh, through testimonies like mine, people are beginning to understand. And I, I think it's just people talking to people, organizations talking to organizations. Uh, occasionally you have someone with the courage like Tulsi Gabbard who comes out. You have Vanessa Bealey, you have Janice Kortkamp, uh, you have uh, the Schiller Institute, you have different ones, uh, uh, Infowars before they were censored and, and annihilated. You had, you had Syria Girl until she was censored and annihilated. Uh, there, there's definitely a clampdown going on to destroy alternative media so that it's not so that it's not because of some foreign threat, it's because of the threat that Americans will begin to comprehend what their government is doing. And that's, that's a very sinister, very, very dark thing that's happening in our government today is the imposition of, of censorship on information flowing to the American people. Yeah, it's really interesting that you point that out because a lot of these people like Alex Jones, you know, people can have whatever opinion on him, but he didn't really get censored until he started speaking about um, the, the false flag chemical attacks. So it, it was just interesting to see that the, that they cherry picked that as like the nail in the coffin for him. That that's you could, I mean, honestly, if you want fake news, I could go through any of the mainstream 
uh, broadcast and I could identify some of the most obscenely ridiculous things that they have said. Nobody cares about that. They can stay on. Uh, Left-wing sites. Left-wing sites that just make things up. Um, the Steele dossier that's continued to be propagated. And everybody knows it's just trash that was made up by some, some guys who said, you know, I wonder if somebody would believe this stupid thing. That's all it is. It's just, it's garbage. And yet they keep promoting it. And uh, nobody says, oh, we got to shut them down because it's fake news. Now, journalists make mistakes. And Alex Jones, you know, he had some errors in what I, I, I you know, I didn't believe uh, all of the things that he said. I don't believe all the things anybody says. But, uh, but he said a lot of things that were true. And that's what got him delisted was that uh, he was telling the truth about Syria, about the Mideast, and talking about peace. You're not allowed to talk about peace. That's a forbidden term these days. Yeah, unfortunately it is. And um, I guess I encourage everyone who's listening and watching, just look more into the Syrian war. Um, read the piece from uh, Philip Seymour Hirsch, the, uh, thin, the thin line and the rat line, or the red line and the rat... The red line and the rat line, and the other one that he did was military to military. Seymour Hirsch, S-E-Y-M-O-U-R-H-E-R-S-H. -E -E Great man. Senator Black, thank you so much for joining today. This is this has been great, and, and uh, just once again, can't tell you how honored I am to speak with you, and. Uh, Feels, I feel extremely privileged that you that you that you gave me you know so much time to explain this. This this was uh, absolutely wonderful. Okay, well, thank you very much, and uh, best of luck to you with all the things that you're doing. Thank you, Senator. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.